This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. There are patches of land that we pass every day that are unruly, wild, unkept, and often strewn with litter. So we just ignore them. They lie between the urban and the managed countryside, and we know them because they exist everywhere. So for this week's Open Country, we've come to the outskirts of Coventry to explore why these overlooked edgelands have become a source of inspiration for artists and writers. That's been there for some time, actually. Since I started coming here, the shopping trolley in the River Sherbourne. And that's what I look for when I'm photographing the potential stories that traces can, can leave within the edgelands and kind of perhaps romantic potential of the spaces. We're crossing this muddy brown river over an iron bridge and the steps at the far side take us down to just below a playground of a school. This yard is still used at break times but I know that the school tried to stop the kids from going into this kind of patch of, of edgelands because of the kind of activities that are associated with it. This kind of space that's not surveyed, there's no surveillance there, it attracts particular illicit activities. It's a kind of a place where you might experiment. That freedom is kind of hard to, to find, really, I guess. And this is the shot at the end of the book with the, the litter on the floor and... Um, this kind of desire path kind of uh, snaking around as well. And kind of with the edgelands, it's you create your own path. You often find ruins of some sort, kind of post-industrial ruins. And there the train went along the embankment at the top. That's another sound of edgelands, I would say, for you, Johnny. It is, yeah. It's very much a transitional space and it's travelled at speed really uh, and often when we go to landscapes for leisure it's it's often kind of taken in at a very slow pace and perhaps the element of going past it at some speed it's it's just not seen and not appreciated in that way i'm with johnny bark a photographer and your recent exhibition was called inhabiting edgelands so i want to try and understand more johnny about what edgeland is it's not always defined as edgeland. Sometimes it's urban wildscape. Sometimes it's kind of barren land, wasteland. And there's not a consensus on what it is. So they are areas, say, between an urban environment. We have Coventry just beyond us. Yeah. And then, if, if I was to almost gesture the other way, it would be the countryside. In the, the kind of spheres of the city, I guess, that there's the centre. And then this is the, the kind of hinterland where activities such as, well, we're, we're right next to a, an incinerator, so people would go to the tip, and often there's a lot of litter that kind of decorates the edgelands in that sense. We're, we're standing right next to um, Bluecoat School in Coventry and, and beside the River Sherbourne, the, the hidden River Sherbourne, and then next to that is, is the train line that connects Coventry and London. And we're just standing right inside a, a woodland very decrepit, uncared for. There's black marker graffiti on the trees. The bark has been ripped off. There are cycle tracks going into the woodland. So not the place that I would feel comfortable, I have to say, walking into 
on my own. It's hard to get over the menacing appearance of them and, and the eyesore nature of, of the litter on the floor, really. And yet, we've all experienced an edge land. We've just never called it that. We've seen them and experienced them. Either, you know, from the confines of your car or a train, you look out and there are those scrubby edges along the railway lines, or you come into forgotten, ill-used places like this where maybe as a child it would have been your special secret place to play games. And There's a really strong sense of adventure, but I feel now that children are, are encouraged less to come here and there's a lot more anxiety associated with these spaces and perhaps literature and the art that's being created is associated with that past and revisiting them now and, and finding that sense of adventure again you get this sense, this kind of post-apocalyptic sense that nature kind of prevails and takes over. And it's that sense of wilderness. That's very rare to find, actually, that you can experience something like that. A wildness like that, but in the edge of a conurbation and a (laughs) fast-flowing railway track. Absolutely. It's, It's... Every now and again, uh, it would be pitch black, but I'd see the lights of the train going past. And the incinerator behind the train track, it would have a a glaring red light and the smoke coming out and it would be like a yellow sky. And that's the Edgeland sky in some respect, the city, nature, everything. That's the kind of strange, creative kind of brainwaves that I get when I come to these spaces. Tile Hill is a little further out of the city centre and it's the place where the poet Liz Berry has written a series of poems called The Passion. And I think this is your first visit to Tile Hillwood. It is. I'm so excited to see it. Why? Well, I've seen the beautiful paintings that George Shaw, the artist, has made of Tile Hill and its woodlands and it's, it's been so inspiring to me in my writing. And I feel as if I know the woods because the paintings are so vivid and alive and enchanting. They've got these beautiful titles, very poetic, often from literature, Thomas Hardy, or from religious scenes. But they have this ordinary, scruffy, edgeland landscape. And um, why did you connect to them? I grew up not too far away in the black country, and that's very much an Edgelands landscape. It's sort of a post-industrial landscape with woodlands and places where nature's grown wild again and taken over. And it was a time when I was trying to write about the black country. And in a way, that became the key that I used to let myself back into the black country and its landscape. And when you use the word Edgelands, mm-hmm. what comes into your mind? I think those undersung, under-celebrated little bits of wildness that you find all around cities and towns and urban areas. It might be woodlands, fields, a factory that's overgrown and that's got beautiful plants growing out of a canal. There's a beautiful black country word for a tiny piece of edgeland which is called donkey bite. A little bit of grass that's so small just one donkey could have a nibble on it. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that because I was reading mm-hmm. one from your sequence of poems which were inspired by the George Shaw set of mm-hmm. paintings and you use that phrase donkey yes. bite and I couldn't work it out but now you say of course. Do you want to read a bit of that? Yeah. 
the assumption. And we'll go there again. Make no mistake. There'll be no truants. No sly ghost breaths of smoke from behind the gates. The air will be damp November. The fog lying soft across the playing fields. We'll walk there without knowing. Heads down in the drizzle, fists stuffed in pockets. Or holding the hand of a girl we used to love. Her laugh a mouthful of Kailoi. Our bodies will know the way. And they'll all be there. The ones we thought gone. The mums. Their mossy winter coats pulled close. The sisters caught in papier-mâché projects of the galaxies. And the fathers, hand-scrubbed, who will bend to gather up our shadows as we slip through the buckle in the railings, slender as we were, towards the cry of a handbell. And that smell, that smell of clean pages, plasticine, the lavender of Miss Dooley's throat as she bathes a graze. Everything will be waiting. Do you think they deserve to be looked at anew, these edgelands? It's interesting. I was reading some of the things that George Shaw had said about his paintings and he was saying he paints places you wouldn't find on a heritage map. And I think to look at edgelands in that way, to make something beautiful or to celebrate them, is a way of actually lifting up the places that most of us experience every day. So many of us live in urban areas. These are our little pockets of wilderness, the ones that our children will play in or that we'll walk our dogs in or that we'll walk through when we're caught in. And so to celebrate those places and say, actually, look, here's this extraordinary wild place. It's a way of showing people that actually the places where they live are beautiful and interesting and there's lots to be proud of there. But you know, Edgelands are not always nice. No. They're not always nice, Liz, no. Edgelands. <laughs> no, believe me, I grew up in the black country. <laughs> I think it's about acknowledging that tension. And actually in lots of Shaw's paintings, in lots of the poems, there's that sense of unease of it being a place where something transgressive might happen, something criminal, something sinister, something unsettling. Pigwood is another word. Really, it was the name Pigwood. It's really guttural, like Anglo-Saxon name and so the poem I wrote about it is quite dark much darker than is suggested by the painting and probably that's the poem that most hints at sort of the ugliness or the the uneasiness at work in these edgelands places these woodlands pigwood in the darkling hours when the estate royals in sleep or slumps half kyloid in the television's blue you crouch in the blackness, hands stifling your mouth, breath held for the sound of your child's breath. You're afeard. You're there again. Pigwood. Its name filling your mouth with dirt. Wetched leaves slapping the night. A rabbit's head mouldering to an ivory jewel box. Back at the end of summer, always the end, girls drinking from amber pot bottles, then lying down beneath dens of alders and tarpaulin, as if these were the last days of something worth saving. Yes, this is the place, with its silver birch fine-bound as a steeple, its willows soddened with weeping.
I think too you draw a lot of um, an energy, particularly sort of a, a passionate sexual energy from these sorts of places. And it's particularly woodlands, I think, because they're so secret and hidden by their very nature. They're places where all the courting, the romancing, <laughs> they're our own real way of touching the wild. Think about our fairy stories. How many of them happen in woodlands, in secret places? I just saw a little frog. If you heard what I was saying, then don't you kiss me. (laughs) Tile Hill Wood is an edgeland, but it's also a place of great scientific interest. And Peter Cook is a member of the Coventry and District Natural Historic and Scientific Survey. And he can remember when the woods here were surrounded by open country. We are here. The blues are pools... These were the the pits from which the clay was dug for the tiles because of the Tile Hill area, you see. It was known for who was making tiles. Perhaps I ought to say to start with that the reserve was founded in 1930. The City Corporation bought land from what was known as the Stonely Estate and they bought 946 hectares ready for expansion, you see, because Coventry was growing... Sometime just after that, probably in the 1929-1930, the idea of having a nature reserve was brought up. It is graded as an SSSI, a triple SI. Yes, mm. which you don't really expect in an edgeland bounded by traffic, but it is. Oh, well, well I, wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with you there, because it depends what's in the place. We'll go and explore a little bit. Now, you've got some of the members of the society this, with you. This is That's my wife, Rachel. Known Hello, as, Rachel. Known as Ray as well. Uh-huh. <laughs> and yeah, well, there's a connection with this wood, which is quite nice. You were walking around with a sweep net. Yeah. You were the bug man. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and I thought, oh, yeah, well, he, he seems interesting. She was still at school then. <laughs> <laughs> my last year in college, he proposed to me and we uh, got married... My mother was a bit cross. About five weeks after college ended, we got, I got married. And you've been coming to Tile Hill Wood ever since? Yes. When I joined, it was just open. It was fields all the way round. Nothing else but fields. What an amazing connection with a place that people just nip through with their dog or, you know, nip back through, you know, as a shortcut on their way to work. For you, it is a whole other intriguing, fascinating environment. I spent so many hours up here working on and studying the different creatures and finding things and learning all the time. We, we did a lot of um, mothing here and that was my first introduction to the wood, going to a moth night. They used to keep storm lamps, the old storm lamps, you know, the old glass storm lamps, the paraffin storm lanterns. People used to go around the wood looking at the sugar patches with that. We also used to hang up a, a white sheet between two trees and then Prof Shotton had his car with the headlights um, beaming onto the sheet to light it up. And I remember on one occasion uh, we were all round looking at our catches and we saw some headlights. The doors both opened and <laughs> four policemen came out. Yes, the the, the sugaring, which I ought to clarify, was a mixture of um, molasses and rum it was amazing in those days because there were there were lots of moths, not like nowadays. On one strip of sugar, we've had sort of up to sort of 70 or so moths, all feeding greedily at this because they put their they try not to get their feet sticky so they can reach in with get their tongue. They know they're proboscis and feeding on the molasses there. And then when they get when they've had enough, they fall off drunk. <laughs> Why do you think it's important that it remained 
What's the alternative? <laughs> Housing? OK, people need houses, but they also need a place like this, don't they? I've just come for a moment or two into Tile Hill Library because this is where I've arranged to meet Terry Harvey. And Terry, I know you have had a many, many years of your life you have committed to working with residents' organisations in this particular part of the world on the edge of Coventry. Looking at a map here, I know that I was in Tile Hill Wood here. There's Banner Road at the side. But you've got this as an acetate thing over an old map. Yeah. If I take this acetate you have, which has a street map on it yeah. of today, you put that down and you can see how housing and building and development has swallowed up almost everything around Tile Hill Wood. That was had to be built because just after the war... A lot of people came from all over the country to work in the car factories. Mm. Along Tyler Hill Lane, which is the main thoroughfare, you had tents, caravans, double-decker buses, where people were just living. And also there was a hostel down in Tyler Village that was where the soldiers were billeted. And when they left, people went and just... I had a number on the door, moved in. I mean, at one time, when the car factories were open, a lot of the people living in even three-bedroom houses, you had two lots of families living in one house. The son would be working on days in the Standard Motor Company. And at night, his dad would be working. So one would come out, get into bed, the other one would go to work. But all the car industry is gone now. And it leaves these empty, desolate places very often, doesn't it? And I've come to the conclusion that probably two generations of families have never worked. So it does get a little bit depleted, but we're fighting hard to keep it, you know, to resurrect it. Now, you take people out for walks. Can we explore a little bit with you? Yep. I'd like to have taken you down, but I think it's a bit too muddy. It is muddy, yeah. and I'm very conscious that your breathing is laboured, you're, you're wearing an oxygen pack on your back, yeah. but you wanted to bring me here. It's my home. I'm quite proud of it. We used to put on community days. We'd have the urban rangers, woodland officers, and they'd set up Indian teepees and doing woodcraft. Kids still come up to me now, they're 15 and 16. I remember all the things that we used to do. And a lot of kids growing up, they would not swap anywhere for Tarlow because they've got that woodland to play in. Edgelands are intriguing because of their proximity to people. And for J.D. Taylor, or Dan, as he's known, these edgelands are a place to explore how we live today. There you are, put that in I mean, the saddlebag. I don't know if many people will be in a rush to steal this uh, old bicycle, but just in case. Because it's a bike that you, Dan, or J.D. Taylor, yeah. 
Do you just use your initials, JD or? I write as JD Taylor, but yeah. uh, when I when I meet people, I'm Dan. I'm somebody from London, and I ask people what is life like here. I normally get all sorts of answers. So why did you want to meet here, Dan? With Herschel Common in particular, it's got a really curious history dating back to uh, medieval times of uh, Coventryans uh, grazing animals. Probably was once part of the forest of Arden. People used to go bowling and dancing and running and shooting here. But when we go further north, we get onto woodland. Woodland that is kind of bounded by the common on one side and houses on the other, but it doesn't really belong to anything. And maybe that's kind of what Edgeland is. It's, it's no man's land. I suppose maybe what makes it appealing is that perhaps now, as most of us live in heavily built-up urban areas, we can't find the unspoilt wilderness. And maybe we had an ideal of wilderness which has kind of been handed down maybe from you know, romantic poets like Wordsworth, of something that is unspoiled, and that's kind of impossible in a way. And maybe I, I think that our interest in Edgelands stems from a kind of recognition that there is, kind of, there is nature, there is kind of beauty everywhere. We don't need to get in the car and travel to the highlands for it. But not all Edgelands in my head look or feel like this. I, I, I see desolate, you know, pre-industrial sites of tumble down walls and broken windows and yeah. you know and, and a life and energy that is gone i remember going through quite a few and on the bike you'd have to be quite careful that you didn't get a flat tire because there's no way you're going to get through it there's dumped mattresses broken sinks there's something that can be quite unpleasant about them too i suppose there are places because they're unseen and because we're not seen in them that you know we can just go if we're a, a cheeky builder and dump a load of stuff and no one will, t- will pick us up for it because and this is a problem with common land as well because it doesn't necessarily belong to one person but there's a whole history of common land in Britain that medieval peasants um, would come and pull down the fences and the walls you know you will not take our land in Coventry um, a lot of the, uh, over the kind of 14th 15th century there were these great riots in which the mayor had um, loaves of bread thrown at him after he tried to kind of build some walls. Common land was fought for by our ancestors. It's ours. But what were you seeking for when you went off on your thousands of miles on the bike? When people go kind of cycling um, in Britain, they might kind of go to sort of the beautiful towns like Oxford and Cambridge, um, or they'd skip the cities altogether and just go to the country. And I thought, no, if I want to understand what is important to people, then I, I, sh- I need to kind of go everywhere and, and talk to... Um, dog walkers and talk to people eating pasties outside Greg's to get a sense of the different lives that are here and you don't get that when you're just amongst beautiful scenery you know along a kind of um, a national cycle route a lot of people talk about places with pride but pride that's based in the past tense we used to make this here Coventry is a very good example of that isn't it with its great car industry that that was once those are the edgelands that we're trying to explore in a way isn't it with yourself and others so this is the woodland that is so unexpected. Yes. It's huge. Yes. And look at those trees. Actually, there's a sense of an avenue through them. Yes, Beautiful. Big, they're ash trees and deeply textured bark. Oh, that's wonderful. Yes. So well, the forest of Arden once would have stretched all the way into Coventry. And this is for a living memory of that, of that wonderful forest that, you know, Shakespeare, you know, depicted in As You Like It. <laughs> that we could hear the birdsong earlier, but it's even more intense here. But to be realistic, if we're talking about edgelands, you're not going to get this feeling in a derelict industrial estate. Mm. Edgelands have this kind of ugly and kind of um, overgrown, resistant quality to them. But at the same time, 
as much as there's the kind of the broken glass in these places even in those overgrown zones you can you can hear nature sometimes you can smell it and you can pick the blackberries there is still a kind of beauty there even if it is kind of a sour beauty I don't know if, if we could fight for all our edgelands. I don't know if there'd be ap the appetite for it. But I think for certain places, there ought to be a fight, really. Because if we lose these places, we lose our, our connection to the past. If we lose that, we're going to become even more kind of caught up in this often unsatisfying domestic world, of which often we find kind of boring, really. So we must protect these places. Not all of them, but a lot of them we should. <laughs>